Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. In 1880, the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad came to Albuquerque. But more importantly, the company located its locomotive repair shops in the town. This would change the city forever. At their height, the locomotive shops employed 2,000 people. The quadrant system for Albuquerque addresses actually originated with this giant facility. In the book Overhaul, a social history of the Albuquerque locomotive repair shops, Richard Flint and Shirley Cushing Flint explore how these shops became the catalyst for the modern city. Basically, the whole area where the rail yards is was fields with the sakias. So people were mostly farmers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What yeah. was the population? It was less than a thousand of what we would call Old Town. Albuquerque at the time was one of a number of small communities that were in this part of the Rio Grande Valley and not necessarily the most important one. Why did they choose Albuquerque? They were considering Bernalillo probably for the same reasons, which was access to water. The landowners weren't willing to give up the land for the price the railroad was willing to give them. So they just moved on down the line and picked what we call New Albuquerque, or they called New Albuquerque. There were developers here, and they're starting to negotiate land deals with people who own those rent, those small plots of land, and then they're going to sell them one way or the other to the railroad. The Cerritos coal fields were also very important because coal was a major fuel for steam locomotives at the time. But without the water, the coal would have been irrelevant. Why was this such a catalyst for change in the city? Boy, it was a catalyst, though, in so many ways. Maybe the biggest change was a complete change in the mode of existence, the way of life in the middle Rio Grande Valley. I mean, it shifted from this agrarian, small town style of life to suddenly urbanized industrial life, completely different. Even it changed people's ideas of time because to work in an industrialized setting, it almost didn't matter anymore, whether it was daylight or night, what day of the year it was, those kind of things just went all year round. Whereas farming, of course, had seasons and, you know, night was not a particularly good farming time, you know, I mean, so it really changed even those kinds of perceptions. So mm-hmm. it was really a thorough change in the sort of outlook on life and how it was arranged, virtually in every respect. So then also, I mean, you're bringing in foreigners and sometimes real foreigners, they just basically... In- had landed in the East Coast and was were coming out West getting jobs because they had the skills that people here didn't have at the time. So you're importing an entirely different group of people. So they, here's this little intact place that we call Borellis now, in South Broadway, being invaded by people, some who did not speak English some who did not speak Spanish. I mean, I can only imagine what that was like for the people in what we call Old Town. I almost want it like a spaceship landed and people got out <laughs> and they don't speak your language. They don't know anything about your culture. And they're, they're here. And they're sort of bringing with them an established hierarchy of 
social hierarchy, economic hierarchy, and suddenly the people who were native living here, both Native Americans and Hispanos, they had their own internal systems of differentiation in their societies. Well, suddenly they were all pushed down to the bottom. I put on top of them was the railroad society. And all of them sat above all the people who were here before. Suddenly, it's like the, the carpet gets pulled out from under a whole lot of things about the people who had been living here uh, before the railroad arrived. It's just extremely dramatic and very unpleasant. And then also the change in the economic system of not barter, which a, a lot was right. still going on. It became cash, which they didn't particularly have. Eventually, of course, they, they work their way in. They start up little businesses that cater to the railroad workers. Yeah, I was struck by how you recorded, like, it's not just them, but it's all the affiliated things that came with them, the, the businesses, the cobblers, the laundries, the restaurants, the prostitution, <laughs> um, and then the other industries that serve the railroad. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it is this gigantic change, and not only is it gigantic in the sense that it's thoroughly different, but it also is a larger presence than the native presence. Hmm. Very quickly, I mean, almost with the arrival of the first locomotive, New Albuquerque is bigger than Old Town Albuquerque. And it just continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It never turns back. So that the dominant force in the whole valley becomes the railroad town. Uh, so that they're really displaced in so many ways. And then it happens so fast. When they finally pulled in to do set up shop, so to speak, they're already on their way out of town. Mm. I mean, <laughs> they're building more track as they go. They're headed to Los Lunas and they're going to then and then go to a right and go to California. California. Of course, the railroad town was truly the dominant economic force. So it really transformed almost everybody's lives. If you were going to survive economically, somehow you had to accommodate to the railroad. In the first few decades of the uh, locomotive shops in Albuquerque, it was mostly a white workforce, or if there were Latinos and Native folks and African-Americans, they were in low-skilled jobs, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. It's definitely true. They, the they, railroad itself had that policy. They were... Mm very racist in the whole line, not just here. Not just here. This is University Showcase on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick. I'm speaking with Richard Flint and Shirley Cushing Flint about their book, Overhaul, A Social History of the Albuquerque Locomotive Repair Shops. That's out from UNM Press. I wanted to turn to the actual servicing, what the work that took place in the locomotive shops. What is involved in servicing and actually overhauling a steam engine? Steam locomotives were actually fragile in many ways because they had many, many, many parts, many moving parts. So they were subject to friction and wear all the time. When the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe arrived in New Mexico in the Albuquerque area. At that time, locomotives were having to be completely overhauled 
about once every 18 months. That means they have to tear them down to nuts and bolts, basically. I mean, remove every single part, uh, check it against the specifications, and if anything's wrong, either fix it by machining it in a different way or have it remade. And that would have to be done right on site and then painted and lubricated and put back together. It was a quite uh, daunting process and I think was could only be seen as a sort of routine thing by people who really were used to it uh, because there was just so much detail. It just, to, I think to an outsider, it seemed like just hopeless. I mean, you have thousands of parts. You have to take them all apart. You have to take each one, clean each one, uh, down to, you know, bolts and nuts and put them all back together the way they came off. Essentially build a new locomotive using those same old parts or some new ones that had to be made, fabricated in the blacksmith shop at the locomotive repair shop. Is this where having water is so important because they had to use steam to run the tools and the things they were using in the shop? Yeah, it was, was, water was everywhere. Everything's greasy. So when you're cleaning it, hot, well, steam, really, but certainly very hot water was very important to even attempt to get things clean. The parts, when they would take them off, would be very greasy. There was a lye pit at the shops. All those parts, greasy parts, have to be dumped in this lye bath first. Then they all have to be washed off. Then you can actually look at the part and measure it and make sure that it's the right size and all that kind of stuff. And certainly the Rio Grande was the biggest source of water between Kansas City and California. These were obviously really highly skilled jobs. And you write about strikes in eight, the 1890s. And then in 1922, why was the one in 1922 so pivotal for organized labor and also the workforce at the Albuquerque locomotive shops? When uh, World War I began, there was a real crisis in transportation, sort of the kind of thing that they're talking about now, of supply line bottlenecks. And the big bottleneck that they had was that trains were hauling all this war material uh, to the East Coast to then put on ships and send across to Europe. And then they were left with empty boxcars. It ended up being less expensive for many people just to keep sending the boxcars they had East until, of course, they finally ran out of boxcars. The suppliers have no more boxcars to send. The East is f- actually jam-packed full of boxcars. The transportation system was frozen. And, and privately owned, and, and private, every company right, had its every, own bottom line and its own mm, exactly. style. So President Wilson uh, nationalized the railroads in 1917, December 1917. And that put all railroad employees became instantly, overnight, U.S. employees, government employees. They all had worked under the same pay scale, uh, whereas each individual railroad had its own before. No, that's not going to happen here. We're going to, everything's going to be uniform. Uh, and it meant that, uh, for one thing, there was an evening out of wages across the railroad industry. Mostly the ra- wages went up. Well, when the World War I ended, the railroads clamored to have 
authority over their own companies back. And Wilson tried to put that off for as long as he could. But when the companies took control of the railroads back, they almost immediately put pressure on the employees to lower wages. And employees, of course, were not happy with that. They'd already had several years of uniform, fairly high wages during the war, and they were not happy at all when the companies wanted to lower their pay again. So the immediate impetus for the 1922 strike was that fact. All across the country, all of the shop workers all went out strike simultaneously in 1922, and it brought the railroads to a screeching stop. But there had been an earlier strike in the 1890s, a national railroad strike. The railroad workers had actually won that strike in short order because they really did bring everything to a stop and the companies couldn't do anything about it. So they gave in very quickly uh, and allowed wages to rise and all that kind of stuff. Well, when that happened, the railroads got together and said, never again is that going to happen. We are not going to be in that situation. So they entered into compacts with the various states to uh, have enforcement mechanisms in place, mostly National Guard units in the states, to keep shops functioning, even if workers went out on strike. And so that's what they did in 1922, and very nearly killed the big railroad unions. One of the things that happened here in Albuquerque was that because the uh, ATNSF was organized in that way to suppress the strike, they fired workers who would not come back to work. And who were generally those um, people from Eastern Europe and all those Anglo high-skilled railroad workers. And that allowed, of course, the all the Hispanics or Native Americans or Blacks in the shops to move up and fill spaces they were completely capable of doing. They'd been working in the shops. They had those skills. They just didn't have those titles or the wages or the that wages. went with it. So they were able to move up into those slots. Now, we would call that scabbing because they would cross the line to work but it also meant that they were able to suddenly get paid for what they were worth and what they knew how to do. Really was an opening for them because then the company itself, ATNSF, they loved to hire family members of people who already worked for them. And so once Hispanics and Native Americans had a, like I say, foot in the door there because of the strike, then it's sort of a self-perpetuating thing where more of their family members got hired. They increased their share of the workforce in the shops. And, and then became proud union members. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know. How did this affect the economic status of these people and their descendants who worked in the shops or were had better wages? Even from the beginning, when, when the railroad arrived here, people were coming off of little um, small agricultural towns nearby, Berlin, Los Lunas, Bernalillo. People were being drawn in to become part of this wage economy that, that they were not a part of. 
we see that this strike and their being able to move up and fill those positions they were, were, were entitled to, except this racism was preventing them from ever having that, then became generational upward mobility. So then they're moving into Borellas, South Broadway, San Jose area. They're living in those homes that were actually built often for these uh, East Coast people. So they, they're not adobes. They're not, they look like, you know, Kansas or something. Yeah. And sending their children to school and then to college. And then those children are becoming professionals, all kinds of professionals. Some stayed in the railroad industry. A lot didn't. It's quite a sort of miracle turnaround for them, I think, very fast, like yeah. two generations. We, we like to point out some of the amazing ones, like Judge Chavez, Supreme Court. Former I mean, Supreme Court Chief Justice. I mean, that's two generations. Deb Holland is another one. Here she is now, you know, Secretary of the Interior. <laughs> and, and, and her grandmother worked at, her on the railroad. And her mother worked for the railroad. We see many examples of that. One thing we see is a dispersal of throughout even the United States of descendants of people who worked the shops. And a lot because of the, that upward economic mobility that had its root anyway in this strike in 1922. If you just tuned in, this is University Showcase on KUNM. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm speaking with Richard Flint and Shirley Cushing Flint about their book, Overhaul, A Social History of the Albuquerque Locomotive Repair Shops. It's from UNM Press. The advent of diesel had a crushing impact on the Albuquerque Locomotive Repair Shops in the 1950s. Why? The Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad in the 1930s became a big advocate for changing over to diesel locomotion because for them it was so much cheaper. It took fewer people to repair. That was always a big thing. There were fewer moving parts in diesel locomotives. The, the engines themselves were much simpler than the, these huge cranky things that were the steam locomotives. They were these simple electric motors which were just basically wound wire. More reliable. Uh, more reliable. They didn't have to be serviced as often. And they, of course, didn't require the cost of the same kind of fuel that the steam locomotives had. All railroad companies in the United States and eventually around the world made this change from steam locomotion to diesel locomotion. That, of course, had a huge impact on the shops here in Albuquerque. They didn't need workforce that was here and besides it was a different kind of repair work so they didn't even need the kinds of tools and setup that was here in Albuquerque. Hmm. So the ATNSF picked out two of their large shops, not Albuquerque was not one of them, and designated them as diesel repair shops and they reassured, tried to reassure the staff here in Albuquerque that they were not going to close the Albuquerque shops. They were going to keep them going. They were Either they were going to service uh, diesel locomotives or they would have some other use that they would be employed. And um, that was not exactly true. 
Well, they did limp along. They limped doing, along doing. They would do repairs, repairs to the items that would go out on the track to do repairs. Track maintenance. When did it finally close? The actual closure, I mean, the final, final, final sort of locking the, the gate. Door with the chain. <laughs> you know, with the chain. Didn't happen until about 1990. Oh. There, was still, there was still stuff going on. They were using part of the space for storage, the, the railroad was, and they had very minor amounts of small equipment repair going on, uh, but it was nothing like what had been happening when the shop was at its full. Where did all those people go? Boy. It's, it's not, some of it's, they were able to transition with the skills they had. Some went to the lab. To Sandia. Sandia and Los Alamos. And okay. Los Alamos because the machinists, they all needed that skill set at those places. Some moved to other railroads, dispersed to California and Texas. And some moved into places like the airline, airplane manufacturing. In LA. Or in Southern California, mm -hmm. elsewhere in California. Quite a number of New Mexico families who had worked at the shops did that. So there are quite a few New Mexico families that have relatives in Southern California precisely for that reason. And they also went to the oil and gas industry, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So ultimately, should we see the Albuquerque locomotive repair shops as a positive or a negative legacy for the city, or is it very complicated? Albuquerque is what it is because of the shops. I mean, without the shops, it would not be what it is. You can say there are good things about it, and there were, there were negative things about it. I think that for me, that one problem is that because we were marching down this road, America, with or without whoever wanted to join us, it's like, well, here was a great opportunity to join in and get something out of it. And as we said, a bunch of people actually amazingly did very well having had the shops here. I think that, you know, to fight that and say, I want to go back and just have my little milpa, I can see some people would say, oh, that's what I wished had happened. But I think in the big picture, that wasn't what was happening. And so yet they were able to jump on the bandwagon here and take advantage of this situation. You'd, you'd have to say that overall, the shops certainly were a major factor in integrating the people of uh, Albuquerque and New Mexico into a no, not only national, but international economy. And if we had not made that step, where would we be? I don't know, but uh, it seems like they had the advantage of having become part of what was happening as in a dominant way. And that for many people, that was a good thing. So yes. now that there are all these efforts to reinvigorate the rail yards, a lot of movies have shot there. We have a, a market there every week, bigger plans, some of them controversial. Do you hope that whatever happens there will help people learn the history of this and why it's important? Sure, absolutely. First of all, it's an amazing industrial building period piece. And there aren't a lot of them in the U.S. left standing. I mean, the amount of money it would take to bring it up. To rehabilitate. Even, yeah. You know, that's a question. But to, to think to just which they considered at one time tearing the whole thing down, the railroad did. 
then I, I feel like it's good that they didn't because we don't have many of these buildings left. And it's just good to know historically that that's what was going on. That's what it looked like. And I think as a reminder to those of us who live in Albuquerque now, that that is the root of modern Albuquerque. It is what started this as a modern city. And to be aware of that, I think, is a good thing, how they have impacted the population of Albuquerque and the middle Rio Grande Valley and northern New Mexico and New Mexico as a whole. That's something that shouldn't be completely forgotten how that happens. And it, it's also, I think, another aspect of it that is worth remembering is that we're having displacements now of people losing jobs because industries are disappearing, things are changing. This has happened before. It has happened before right here. We've managed to weather it before. We can probably weather it again with the right kind of luck and preparation. And those are good things to know from history, I think, that it's not hopeless. There you may are... be displaced, but doesn't mean you have to disappear. Yeah. And I think in addition to that, just the literal remnants of the shops, there are possibilities that are going to be of interest to a lot of people, not just in Albuquerque. There are railroad fans all over you know, they travel around visiting sites that have to do with railroads. So if we are looking at the tourist draw, for instance, this could be a very interesting one. I think that would attract a lot of people. And there are uh, organizations, uh, for instance, the Wheels Museum has been given one, uh, I think they have two now, private railroad cars that have been given to the museum that will eventually be on display. And there is talk among an organization of owners of private railroad cars of bringing a whole bunch of them to Albuquerque uh, to have them here. And even some of the spaces that are in the shops, for instance, the, the machine shop, the existing machine shop building, if it could be repaired, and if it is repaired, uh, would be the perfect place to house and show those kinds of things. And the plans that the city has already underway for other kinds of uses of that property can be good too. I mean, it's, it is a large chunk of real estate, you know, roughly 28 acres in basically downtown Albuquerque that could be a very attractive place both to live and work. Yeah, I think that's what some people in Borellis are worried about. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Just as always. Mm -hmm. It's not as though it's all positive or all negative. Yeah. But there certainly are those options. And I, the city is certainly looking at some of that and has been for some time. So I think we will see as time goes by, whether any of those really come to fruition. And I would assume even people in Borellis will, some people will benefit from that. Sure. In the long run, they will local, figure, they'll figure something out and they will, like that. I, mean, I mean, that's what people do do. Yeah. We accommodate just, just as the people of Old Town Albuquerque accommodated the coming of the railroad to begin with. These changes will be accommodated. It may be painful for some people, but at, at, at some point we will have gotten past it and the people will have jobs and there will be things going on. So, um, I think we're optimistic that the history of 
railroading in New Mexico and specifically the railroad repair shops here in Albuquerque can be a part of that and probably should be a part of that. Well, Richard Flint and Shirley Cushing Flint, thank you for talking with me about your book, Overhaul. You're absolutely welcome. That was Richard Flint and Shirley Cushing Flint. Their book, Overhaul, A Social History of the Albuquerque Locomotive Repair Shops, is from UNM Press. You can find this interview and all our previous interviews online at KUNM.org. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to University Showcase.